This is R.J. Rushdoony, Easy Chair Number 411, June the 12th, 1998. This evening, Brian Shantz, Brian Abshire, Mark Rushdoony, Susan Burns, and I will consider, first of all, a subject we uh, dealt with in a non-easy chair tape that uh, we recorded with Walter Lindsay, a computer expert. It has to do with the implications of the year 2000 for the world of computers and for the economic consequences and disasters which may flow from that. Now, we're not trying to create controversy or dissent. The name most closely associated with this subject is that of Gary North. He has called attention to the problem in a very important way. And I think uh, whether you dissent with his perspective or not, you and I and everyone else owes him uh, a debt of gratitude for calling attention to an important subject. One that uh, many people would prefer would go away. In fact, I will go so far as to say that if the problem is resolved in the next year and a half, so that the crisis of K2000 does not develop to a large degree uh, people will be indebted to Gary North for calling attention to it and compelling them to uh, wake up. On the other hand, there's been a lot of uh, unfortunate heat and unkind words designated. I don't see a very happy re resolution to any of these problems because no matter what happens, no one is going to give credit for a word of warning or for uh, the disaster obviated because of that, uh, or for anyone calling attention to facts which aroused people. Now, uh, with that rather general preface, let me say we are not trying to be controversial but helpful. Our remarks will be directed towards that end. We're very sorry that some see everything said on this as an attack. And with this, we strongly dissent. We want to know what the truth is. First of all, I'll ask Brian to, Brian Abshire, to lead off and give us his perspective, pro and con. Thanks, Rush. <clears throat> Let me begin by by noticing and, and claiming my own problem here. Fifteen years ago, when I was a doctoral candidate at the University of Lancaster in England, studying the sociology of religion, I began at that point making some long-range predictions about what were go was going to happen in our culture over the next 15 to 20 years. And based upon the sociological data of how large populations react to significant social events, now, I said that as the millennium approached, we could expect increasingly bizarre behavior by large segments of the community. In other words, 
people would start going crazy. That's what I call millennial fever. A number of people, a number of groups would equate the end of the century with the end of the world. I predicted things such as mass suicides, uh, the stock market might crash, uh, some people would become totally irresponsible and they'd indulge themselves in an orgy of self-gratification, all that sorts of things. Now at the time, this is like 1983, I was assuming that dispensationalists would be the main culprits because that's back in the time when the comet Kahootek was going to come and the Jupiter effect and the rapture was supposed to come by 1984, etc. And therefore I thought that the rapturites would be generating maybe the leading the storm and generating a frenzy of apocalyptic scenarios, you know, anticipating the second coming. This in fact is very similar to what happened when the first millennium ended and in the year 1000 is that a lot of people thought it was the end of civilization, the end of the world, and the Lord was coming. Well, I've got to tell you something. In all honesty, I was dead wrong in my prediction 15 years ago. The Rapturites seem to have spent their fury back in, the, back in the 70s and 80s, and for the most part, as far as I know, they've been mostly quiet about the immediate future. I mean, there was some things about Jesus was going to come in 1988, and then he was going to come in 1989, and, but after that, we really haven't heard a whole lot. And in fact, the culture as a whole, up to this point, seems to have adopted probably only the, the mildest aspect of millennial fever. Um, now, there was that cult a couple of years ago that were spaceship people, and they all committed suicide so they could join the mothership and fly off to the wherever it was they were going to do. And, and there have, have actually been several movies that have highlighted uh, the, the turn of the century as being a, a mess thing. And there's a very popular television show, as a matter of fact, it's a horror show that uh, focuses on the millennium and bizarre things. But for the most part, um, as a prognosticator, I'd have to say I was close, uh, but no cigar. Sorry about that. I have to admit it. People have not yet become as crazy as I thought they would be. Now, it could be that we're still, you know, a year and a half away, and maybe as we get closer to the year 2000, some of those things are going to start propping up in, in a variety of ways. But thus far, as a, uh, my record of predictions isn't terribly good on it. I thought I knew what I was doing, um, but it hasn't shown up. So there's this chance, I guess, in the next 18 months that I still could be proven right. I might get that cigar after all, but to be perfectly honest, I'm not holding my breath. And besides, you don't inhale cigars anyway. However, the one thing that does kind of fit the, the mentality and kind of fits the, the profile that I was working on 15 years ago does not come from the rapturites or the, the, the God-haters or those kinds of things out there, but really it's coming from within our own camp. And that's what we're calling, talking about the, the year 2000 bug. Now, I'm not trying to say it's nothing or there's no problem here. To the contrary, I, we'll talk about that in a few moments, what I think the, uh, uh, the problems are. But as I talk with people about this issue, reasoned debate seems to have been substituted you know, it uh, seems to have been subjected by a religious fervor. I mean, people are so convinced that this will be the rapture of God, that this will be the judgment of God, that this will be a, a terrible time of God, that if you disagree with them, then you're a heretic, you're an unbeliever, and they will cast you out of their midst. Now, just in case there's one or two people left out in the industrialized world who don't know what we're talking about here, I've got um, Brian Shantz, who's a computer consultant, uh, worked with Ameritech and IBM, um, he is not necessarily an expert on the year 2000, but as a computer professional, he's well-read in the literature in the field, and he can discuss actually what it is that we're facing. 
And then after you do that, Brian, what I want to do is, is come back maybe and interact with some of that actual information that you got, some of the facts, and show how our presuppositions affect how we evaluate those facts, and then what we should do in light of those facts. So, Brian, you know, what is this Y2K, the year 2000 problem uh, that people are talking about, and why is it something people should be concerned about? Thanks, Brian. First of all, what we have to understand about the Y2K problem is the history of the way computers were uh, built and the way uh, people programmed computers. Back in the 50s and 60s when computers took up entire buildings and rooms uh, and in fact had less uh, power than probably the microwave oven in your kitchen, uh, there was a real shortage of resources, specifically memory and long-term storage. And so in order to circumvent that problem, programmers looked for shortcuts every way they could. And one of the key areas that they found a shortcut in was in recording dates. Uh, now most of us, when we look at dates, we think of a month, a year, and a day. And obviously the month can be registered with two digits, the day can be registered with two digits, but the year takes four digits. Now back then, uh, People came up with the uh, brilliant idea of saying that, well, wait a second, why can't we just shorten this down? We know it's 63, and so we'll, instead of saying 1963, we'll just assume that the 19 is there, and we will just put 63 in the computers. And so just only the last two digits of the date were recorded. Now, how that turns into the year 2000 problem is that much like the odometer on your car, especially an older car, once it reaches 99,999 miles, it's going to turn over and you see it roll over and then it just says zero. And of course your car doesn't have zero miles on it at that point, it has 100,000 miles on it. That is the nature of the Y2K problem. When the date turns from December 31st, 1999 to January 1st, 2000, all the computers that have not been, have this problem resolved will see the zero zero and they will assume the 19 in front of it and it will be the year 1900 as far as the computer is concerned. So that, in a nutshell, is the definition. That is the entire problem. Now, uh, it's a very widespread problem. Every computer, uh, from the smallest to the largest, uh, from mainframe computers that still fill up buildings and entire floors, uh, mini computers, PCs on your desktop, all of these have the same problem. Uh, they're going to, uh, ha every time they deal with a date, and every time they compare a date, you'll, if you subtract uh, 99 from 98, you get one year difference. When you subtract 0 or, or 98 from 0, you get negative 98, and that's the problem. So there's a large number of computers <coughs> out there, millions in fact, that have this problem. And also there are computers and things that we may not think of that there's computers in. For example, uh, maintenance systems in modern skyscrapers uh, that keep track of uh, maintenance schedules for the elevators, that keep track of the heating and cooling systems, all computer controlled with what we call embedded systems. And that is where the computer is embedded in the system. There's no keyboard and terminal, but there's a computer there nevertheless. And uh, these go, these are some of the things that we see on a more uh, daily basis. There's also embedded systems uh, in nuclear power plants, monitoring the systems. There are embedded systems in uh, 
power utilities, water utilities, any kind of major industrial complex has embedded systems in it. And so all these computers have to have the Y2K problem addressed uh, or there's going to be trouble. How, uh, how serious, Brian, uh, from your <coughs> reading of the literature and dealing with other computer professionals, um, what kinds of problems really are we facing then? I mean, give, me, give us like a worst case, best case scenario. Well, the important thing to remember about this is that most computer systems nowadays are interconnected. If the power utilities uh, have a problem with their computers that cause them to not be able to generate power, that affects almost everything else. If your, um, if your bank has got their year 2000 problem fixed, there may be another bank that they interface with that doesn't have it fixed. So there's systemic problems that go uh, the length and breadth of society. In terms of what's going to happen, uh, the possibilities are very broad. Because of the systemic interactions, nobody really knows exactly what's going to happen. Uh, there's so many interconnections that it's impossible for us to analyze them all and say what the outcome is going to be. So really the, uh, the effects could go anywhere from a mere, a very short interruption of some services uh, at a personal level with utilities. Uh, it could end up being a, uh, a long-term collapse in the basic services that society provides with, with uh, the utilities, uh, transportation, food supplies, uh, uh, with uh, food supplies being transported from city to city, from uh, the agricultural areas to the urban areas. That could be a serious problem. We might have a problem getting clean water if a uh, water treatment plant goes down. And so one of the good things that is available to us is a system or a, a comprehensive examination of all the uh, possible areas, or, or very close to all the areas. Uh, I have in front of me a book called Time Bomb 2000 by Edward and Jennifer Jordan. Edward Jordan is a uh, computer consultant who has had a long history of work in, uh, in analyzing the computer industry as a whole. He's had a, uh, a lot of uh, skill within software development. But what he's done, he's written a book for lay people. And he addresses areas like your job, health care, um, transportation, banking, your home PC, news and information. And basically what he does in this book is he analyzes it from what would a one-day shutdown mean to you? What would a one-month shutdown mean to you? What would a one-year shutdown mean? And what would a 10-year shutdown mean? And it gives approximate probabilities of each of those. All in all, based on the information that we have in terms of uh, best and worst case scenarios, it'll probably some be somewhere in the middle. There'll be some disruptions. Um, a lot of companies are not going to be prepared for this and they're going to go bankrupt. That's almost guaranteed. Uh, one of the one of the biggest problems in the business industry now in dealing with Y2K is people accepting the fact that it exists. Uh, we have to realize that it's more than a technical problem. It is uh, a business problem. And a, a company can't just say to the IS manager, go fix this. It's beyond that. They have to deal with outside vendors. They have to deal with every interaction that they have in their company 
to give themselves some kind of buffer. They can fix their internal systems, but that alone won't protect them. Uh, Susan, you had something there from, I think you got it from your local bank today? Actually, this uh, was came in a piece of mail that my friend Mary Helen Green has. It's um, from a local bank, and it says, 2000, what should I know about the year 2000? And this bank is basically um, explains the problem as, as Brian Chance did. And then it says, um, business, government, and world organizations are taking this issue very seriously. The Federal Reserve and other regulatory agencies have already identified and prioritized mission-critical applications for financial organizations. We are involved in all activities recommended by these governing agencies. And um, it concludes by saying, our year 2000 planning efforts are well underway with full implementation and testing to be completed by December the 31st, 1998. That's one of our little local banks here in Calaveras County. Based on what you said, it's, it would be obviously be a consideration if somebody was thinking about buying a business, especially something that was very dependent on computers, um, with tax preparation or um, some kind of an energy consulting thing, which we do a lot of in California, that's based upon computers to make sure you're not buying something that's going to be obsolete. Uh, and maybe somebody's selling it because they don't know how to fix the problem. So I guess that would be a consideration if you're buying a business. Because you wouldn't be up to speed on that business to be able to identify the problem fast enough to know even where the problems existed, perhaps. Absolutely. And in fact, one of that kind of leads into one of the other areas. Um, well, I think one of the areas that is going to grow and be strong uh, during the year 2000 crisis is uh, the legal aspects of it. Um, there are a large number of resources available now where people are uh, addressing and talking about the legal implications. And it's a, uh, people are recognizing that there's going to be a serious problem. Um, and there are, one of the things that I uh, looked at in, in preparing for this was that uh, I found that insurance companies are incorporating into most of their new policies, especially for businesses, uh, an exclusion for Y2K coverage. Insurance companies are refusing to cover in the case of uh, a year 2000 failure. Um, and that's prompting a lot, of, uh, a lot of industries to look at how they're going to address that. Uh, um, KLM, the airline, has said that they may shut down their flights. Uh, in the early days of the year 2000 in order to prevent uh, some sort of catastrophe uh, that they will be held liable for that their insurance won't cover. Brian, what's involved in fixing Y2K? I mean, if we know there's a problem, we know it's out there, why can't we just fix it? Well, I think that the breadth and the width, width of... Easy for you to say. Exactly. Uh, the breadth of the... Uh, of the Computers involved. Uh, basically, we're looking at, at uh, mainframes and mini computers that have software that was written specifically for them uh, years and years, 20, 30 years ago. We're looking at PCs that have uh, incompatible operating systems. We're looking at embedded systems that basically there's no interface to other than, and no way to repair it other than replacing the chip. Now, in order to fix it, let's look at these 
things one by one. If we look at the custom software, and this is, these are the things you'll hear numbers about. You'll hear something along the lines that there's 30 billion lines of computer code that have to be gone through one by one in order for us to fix the year 2000 problem. Well, that is one way to fix it. Um, however, that's probably not the smartest way to fix it. Hmm. Uh, there are, estimates vary, but there are as many as 600 different companies that have sprung up over the last several years providing year 2000 remediation tools. Uh, tools that are designed to help programmers fix the problem quickly and uh, uh, get the job done so they can go on and, and continue with their business. There is um, one of the things that we find, especially in the business world, and especially where there's a profit involved, is that people with the proper motivation come up with the answers that sometimes we don't expect. Mm. We don't necessarily uh, expect to see the, uh, the hardest and most difficult means being the only way to fix it. For companies that are using commercially purchased software that isn't Y2K compliant, there's a couple of options. One, they can get an upgrade from their manufacturer of the software if that's available. They can basically go out and buy a new version is what it amounts to. Or if that's not available, sometimes the manufacturer of that software has gone out of business. Then they're able to oftentimes replace the software from a different vendor. One of the things that uh, has developed in recent years actually over the past uh, 15 or 20 years in programming is the concept of programming in modules or uh, in a newer sense object-oriented programming. Now we don't have to go into the details of what that means but basically what it entails as regards the Y2K problem is being able to solve an area of software that deals with the date calculations. That is coded into one module and so what that means is, if you've got a program that does a bunch of date calculations, you don't have to step through every single line of code. You change this, you fix this one module, and then every time the software needs to do a date calculation, it goes back to that. So if you fix it once, you've fixed it for the entire program. So you don't have to go through necessarily billions of lines of code. Exactly. To fix the problem. Yeah. Now, I don't want to downplay the fact that a lot of this custom software isn't written that way. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes it's written in uh, what's affectionately called spaghetti code. By, uh, by programmers. And basically what that means is that we go through and this, the logic of the program is very difficult and complicated to understand. Um, when programmers write software programs, sometimes they don't always do it with the mind of who's going to be coming after them to fix it. And so there's, there is a real difficulty there. Some code is, gonna be have to, is going to have to be gone through line by line to address the year 2000 issue. But it's not necessarily every computer system in the world. Precisely, precisely. And then finally, and one of the biggest things that keeps coming up is the concept of embedded systems. And these are the, the chips and microprocessors that are in uh, industrial applications. They're in, for example, your VCR and your, your microwave. Now, your VCR and your microwave will probably not have to be, uh, are not affected by it. Um, some, the very newer ones may be, uh, but most won't be. However, in the industrial applications, specifically in utilities and safety areas like nuclear power plants, uh, that is definitely going to have to uh, be addressed. The solutions for that are several fold. On the first hand, you can replace or upgrade the programs 
in the embedded systems. And that involves taking out a chip, uh, replacing it, reprogramming it, and putting it back in. Sometimes that's not feasible. Sometimes the company that programmed it is not around. Sometimes there's just no way to do it. It's uh, affixed to the entire uh, hardware system. And in that case, really the only solution is to replace the entire system. Uh, in the, one of the uh, factors I've heard in nuclear power plants is that they're all interconnected very closely. They monitor the plant. Um, they monitor specific areas of it to make sure that safety parameters are kept in place. And it may be that the plant would have to be shut down and all of these systems taken out and replaced. That's a big job. And there's a good chance, in some cases, that it may not be done. Right now, it's very hard to say. Um, some have done it. I know that uh, Pacific Gas and Electric claims to be 2000, year 2000 compliant. Uh, others aren't. So the thing that keeps coming up as you look at this data is that Nobody knows what's going to happen. Hmm. Um, but we can be fairly sure that the worst case scenario is less likely than uh, something that's going to be easier to live with. Uh, now, why do you say that, Brian? Mostly because the factors that I've said already. Uh, People usually will find a way, especially if they've got a strong motivation such as their job, their reputation, their profits. They will work long hours, long into the night to figure out a way to get this problem resolved at some point. Mm -hmm. The more fear, the more uncertainty and doubt yeah. is uh, generated works in favor of resolving the problem because what happens is as people get scared about it, that also motivates them to get in there and find unique and resourceful solutions. It's impossible to say exactly how this is all going to play out. Mm -hmm. Excuse me. I uh, Something that tends to go through my mind, too, if you've ever been in a natural disaster, let's say an earthquake or, or a flood, people are resourceful. And they do things they never thought about doing in a way they've never thought about having to do them, whether it's delivering emergency supplies or keeping um, an essential business operating, uh, such as, you know, grocery stores that have people depend upon them for food. They do this sometimes in, in the most calamitous situations. Sometimes I, I, I think of when I look at it like a Strong's Concordance, how did they do that before they had computers? Mm. Well, there was a way. <laughs> Nobody wants to think about it because nobody would think about doing a project like Strong's Concordance that catalogs every word in the Bible and where to find it. Nobody would think about doing something like that without a computer today, but it was once commonly done. You look at a lot of older books, their indexes were much more complex mm -hmm. than a lot of modern ones that they just flag a word and it automatically indexes it. So. Right. There are alternative ways to do things, not that they're necessarily preferable ways, but I always think when I think of the worst case scenarios and something like this, there are alternative ways to do things. And in an emergency, businesses that may not operate well without computers, it's possible for them to operate. Maybe not efficiently, but people are resourceful enough to accomplish things when it has to be done. We have... Uh a very serious problem, as you've outlined it, 
Brian. And now, uh, well, do you want to continue further along the lines of uh, explaining and developing the nature of the problem? What I'd like to do is to summarize basically what we've covered. The year 2000 problem is unavoidable. There is no silver bullet, as it's been coined, um, that refers to a solution that can be uh, fired off into the world's computers uh, at some point in time and will by itself go through and fix everything. There are tools to aid people, but there is no silver bullet. What companies have started to do is what's known as a triage. In, especially in military uh, field hospitals, triage refers to looking at the patients, looking at those who uh, can function on their own without immediate medical assistance, those who require assistance in order to survive, and those who, even if they get assistance, uh, will die. So what a company has to do in terms of triage regarding the year 2000 problem is to analyze which of its computer systems it desperately needs in order to remain functional as a business. And this not only applies to business, but it also applies to government, uh, IRS, Social Security, uh, welfare systems. Because one of the impacts of this is if the government systems don't work, large numbers of people will not get their welfare checks. Could And this uh, has been uh, forecast as leading to uh, a breakdown in uh, society's structure, um, rioting in the streets, and other possible disasters. Now, in what I've said before, I've indicated that the worst-case scenario is probably not going to happen. However, I do not want to be misunderstood to say that there is not going to be a problem. There is definitely going to be a problem. It's going to affect 99.99% of the people in America, and it's going to affect people around the world. This is not just an American problem. It's a worldwide problem. Uh, it affects worldwide banks, worldwide power systems, worldwide transportation and food delivery systems, worldwide health care systems. And so... At this time, we have got to recognize what the problem is, and we've got to prepare for it. See, my problem here is that being a dumb, uneducated, non-technical type person, when all this information comes at me, I don't know how to evaluate it. In other words, I don't have a technical background. I'm not a computer specialist. I don't have a background in physics or communications or power grid systems or healthcare management or database development. I can't evaluate it. I mean, and what happens is I hear, on the one hand, I read um, in Business Week, you know, it talks about, well, the most likely effect of Y2K will be a slight drop in the GNP for the year 2000 because we're going to have to recapitalize all the businesses, scrap our old systems, and buy new ones that are going to be year 2000 compliant. And so it might have, it might retard the stock market a little bit. It might be a, it, the, the worst effect they're talking about there was a, was a recession. On the other hand, I hear the, the, the other guys on the other end saying that basically the only thing you can do is run to the hills, sit on your hoard, 
you know, load your M16, you know, and be prepared to fight off the marauding gangs of cannibals that are going to come out of the starving cities, and, you know, that's about where you're going to be at. And, and that's really my difficulty here, is how does a, does a layman, does an uneducated person who doesn't have the technical expertise, how does he evaluate this information? And the thing that really concerns me, for instance, in terms, and this is why I call, uh, call this a symptom of millennial fever here, the same sort of thing that I, that I thought I was predicting 15 years ago, is that people who are, there are a certain group of people, especially some of our people, that are clinging to the worst case scenario, that are demanding that the worst case scenario is going to happen. And their rationale is basically this. America is a wicked, evil nation, which we don't agree with. America deserves judgment, no question about that. Therefore, the, year, the millennial bug will be God's judgment on America. Therefore, the only thing you can do is run to the hills to flee that judgment. And I have gotten some really nasty comments from people when I've simply asked the question, who knows? How do you know that God is going to judge us in the year 2000? I mean, he could judge us with an asteroid next week. He could judge us with a terrorist letting off a, a nuclear bomb. Uh, he could judge us with, uh, any, well, the fact is he already is judging us and will continue to judge us. But the fact is that they're holding to this worst case scenario and they're putting really all their marbles in that one particular cup. And basically, uh, they're saying that the only thing you can do is to quit your job, sell your house, get out of the, get out of the city, into the country somewhere, and ride it out in the, in the safety of the woodland. Now, the thing is, it's very interesting. Now, I've, I've gotten some nasty comments from people. You know, people that are good people, intelligent. I, I pretty much respect where they're coming from. Um, uh, and I'm not talking about necessarily any one person. I'm talking about a whole number of friends that are on email and uh, across the country and, and actually across the wor world. And they are clinging tenaciously to the worst case scenario. But here's the interesting thing. It's really where I wanted to go to with what Brian was talking about. Most of the guys, the overwhelming majority of them, when I put pressure on them and really try to nail them down and say, okay, when are you selling your house? When are you moving to the woods to set up your retreat? When is that going to happen for you? They start blustering and flustering and start making excuses. They don't plan on moving. And the reason they don't plan on moving is that they don't have the resources to live out in the country. Now, I don't think I'm being envious or greedy here when I recognize that rich people have more options than poor people. I mean, that's a blessing, right? I mean, rich people, if a man has labored lawfully, if he's tied, if he's provided for his family, he's been generous to the poor, he has certainly the right to do with his wealth whatever he wants to do with his wealth. And if God blesses him, he can enjoy it. If he wants to have a, a yacht and go spend the summer sailing the Caribbean or buy a summer cottage in Maine and, and to have maids and servants and all that kind of good thing, that's fantastic. That's his right. In the same way, if that rich man wants to hedge his bets for the future, if he wants to say, well, wait a minute, you know, I, I want to protect my investment in my yacht. I want to buy some insurance for my yacht. And I want to buy the best medical care that money can buy. And I want to give my kids a great college education, you know, at some university or something. I, I want to have insurance on my life, and I'm going to take out a $10 million policy in this life, and my life, and I'm going, to, I'm going to pay huge premiums to do so. Again, he has the right to do that, and he has the assets to do that. Thirdly, then, if a man is convinced that this year 2000, 
problem could be a time of great social upheaval. If he is convinced that, you know, basically the end of civilization as we know it is going to happen, uh, then he certainly has the right to move out to a rural community somewhere, uh, convert his savings into cash and hard currency, um, stockpile, you know, a year's supply of food, and, you know, buy some generators, dig a hole in the ground and put a gas tank in there and, and prepare to ride the whole thing out, and that's perfectly his right. And because he is wealthy and he's not dependent upon a weekly paycheck, he can then ride out these next 18 months sitting fat and happy in relative comfort and security. Now, if he's really convinced that this disaster-type scenario is the most likely, from his perspective, that's a prudent course of action. But I think the thing that's neglected is that in real terms, it's not really costing him very much to do that. You see, he's a rich man. Rich men have more options than poor people do. So if he pulls all his money out of the stock market and out of banks and has lots of gold and silver and all that kind of stuff, over the next 18 months, granted, his, his money, is, his wealth is not going to inflate very much. It's not going to grow. He's not going to have interest working for him. But at the end of 18 months, he can turn around and take all that money and put it right back in the stock market. He can put it right back in a bank. He can put it right back as a venture capitalist, whatever the case may be. And all he's lost out of that situation has been the increase he would have got if he'd stayed in the system. However, poor people, and I'm including most of us when I talk about poor people, poor people don't have that option. We don't have the same options as rich people. And our peace of mind comes at a much higher price. For example, in a modern industrialized society, all of us make our livings based on the division of labor. We have very, very specialized skills that took a lot of years and education and training and experience to develop. And those, it's a very narrow set of skills. And because we can specialize, we can command a fairly good return on what we have studied. Uh, the problem is, is that those skills have to work in an urban environment. They can't be made to work in a uh, rural environment. In the same way, uh, you know, Christian, American Christians especially, I've been teaching this for over 20 years, but one of the big things that most Christians have is they're in debt up to their eyebrows. They don't own their house. They simply rent it from the bank. They've got car payments. They've got... Uh, you know, consumer debt payments, they've got credit card debts, they've got all these things going around. Uh, and no matter what they want to do, they basically survive from paycheck to paycheck. And they're able to do that because the division of labor allows them to sell their very specialized services and skills at a very reasonable price. And they can feed and clothe their family while they're still paying off the debts. However, now notice this though, and this is the real problem I have. If those people move to a rural area, and then try to find work, they're going to be in for a, a real rude surprise. Now, houses and land in rural communities are usually cheaper than they are in the cities, but they're cheaper for a reason. And the reason, of course, is that there's no work there, and there's no money there, and so therefore the, the market operates, and, and they're not worth as much. So then how, what is a person with a modern set of skills, what's he going to do? Say he's a machinist, right, and he works in a, in a factory and he's a you know, very fine machinist. How's he going to get a job in the country? What if he's a computer technician? What if he's, uh, you know, an accountant or a businessman or all sorts of things that go together? I mean, a lot of us spend our time and energy passing paper from one thing to another. We're supposed to supervise that paper. Not a lot of paper giving jobs in the country. <laughs> Now, I, I have a friend of mine, for example, who also, Brian, by the way, happens to be a computer specialist. And, uh, in fact, he was thinking about m moving into a rural community. So he went around 
and he looked at all the places that were offered it. And for his particular job field, in his specialty, in the local community, the going rate was $6 an hour. Now, I don't know, that sounds a lot of money to some of us, but $6 an hour isn't enough money to, to, to pay for your rent, let alone your food and your clothes and your shoes and your car and all that kind of stuff. And he's got a wife and five kids. He can't even subsist on that. And what else is he going to do? I mean, he's not a rancher. He's not a farmer. He's not, he's not a, a machinist or he's not a, a mechanic. There's only a certain limited numbers of jobs. He cannot afford to live in the country. Now, this what this guy did instead is instead of moving to the country, he moved to an urban area. And he then sold his, his services, his skills, at the going market rate in an urban community. And he basically makes 10 times the salary he would have made in a rural community. Therefore, he can buy a house, he can pay off his debts, he can uh, you know, provide for his children, and even start saving up to, live, to give them an inheritance. Uh, and I think this is something that we need to understand. The people who are claiming that the only option is to retreat to the hills are not really playing fair with us. And, uh, for example, some people say, well, you know, you go in the country and just buy yourself a piece of land and you, 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 know, you, you live on the land and you work the land. Nonsense. Farming or ranching is a very specialized set of skills that takes a man an entire life to become good at it. And most of the guys that are talking about growing their own food, you know, and being independent have never, you know, weeded a turnip patch or milked a cow in their lives. They don't, have a, they don't have a clue about it. They don't know how deep to plant the seeds or how much water there is to come or how much water they need. They don't know what to do about the insects and the vermins that will come in and, uh, and eat their crop. And these people never ask themselves these basic fundamental questions. Now, the rich guy we're talking about earlier, now he's sitting out in the country. He's sitting on his front porch at his survivalist retreat. He's eating his, his freeze-dried food. Uh, he's got a generator-driven icebox. He's sipping cold drinks, and he's enjoying the blessings of God, and he has a right to every single one of them. But meanwhile, two ranches over, his city-bred you know, neighbor is sitting there with starving children because this guy didn't manage to get much of his crop past the raccoons and the deer and the, and the bugs and the pests and all that kind of stuff, and he's trying to feed them on the shriveled remains of his harvest. And, and even in that situation, it all depends upon whether or not the man had the money in the first place to buy a farm, he can't, you know, and he has no income, he can't be making mortgage payments, and pay his tax bills and everything else. And this, I think, is kind of like the nasty little secret of this. When someone puts fear into people's mind and says that you're stupid and you're crazy and you're insane for living in the cities and you've got to get out of there, my question is, well, what are you going to do with these people? How are they going to make a living? What are they going to do for work? How are they going to provide for their families? And the fact is, is that most of us just simply can't afford to do so. Even if we sold everything we had, we still probably couldn't buy a farm outright. Uh, and even if we could buy a farm outright, we still need some kind of income to pay the property taxes, utility bills, food, clothes, shoes, all that kind of stuff. And then, how are we going to acquire the skills that we need to make that farm actually work? Do we think we're going to take a year and we're going to develop the same skills that it took Farmer John over here 30, 40, or 50 years to acquire? And I think that's the real problem with this whole scenario, is that whether we like it or not, sure, I'd love to live in a or, you know, a rural community. I love to live on, you know, 25 acres and on the side of a hill, you know, with nice sloping 
things with, uh, you know, my own goats and lambs and ducks and chickens, and the kids could have horses and cows, and, you know, I could raise Labrador retrievers and pheasants and grouse and shoot them in the fall. I mean, I'd love to do that, but I can't afford it. It's not a matter of, uh, of, uh, of just rearranging my investments. I think some of these people, they know a lot wealthier people than, than the rest of us are. And then you have a very unrealistic expectation of what the actual person can do. Okay, uh, from this point then, um, where do you think the discussion should go? Because I've been kind of monopolizing it, for the, monopolizing it for the last five minutes. I just want to confirm what you said. Over the, I've lived in the country now for 20 years, and I've seen a lot of people come and go because younger couples will sometimes come up because mom and dad bought a place in the country to retire in, they came and visited them and says, I want to live here too. They came up, but they didn't have the income, and they went through what savings they had, mm -hmm. and they ended up moving back to the city with no savings and at a, at a real financial loss. Most of the people who move from the city to the country are of retirement age. They have a pension. They have a lot of equity in a house they sold in the city. They have the capital to do that. Sure. A lot of people who lived in the city most of their life have very romantic notions, as you say, of being self-sufficient, living in the country. And they come here and they spend a fortune on it. They spend a fortune on trying to raise right. a few animals, and they find out that it's very exp those trips to the feed store get very expensive. <laughs> and a rotateller it costs fifteen hundred dollars. <laughs> right. is, is you know it, it gets a little pricey to, to, to try to be self-sufficient. Um, by the same. Um, by the same measure, a lot of kids who grow up in the country have very romantic notions about leaving the country <laughs> going to the city because it's more exciting. Yeah. And we have to divest ourselves of these romantic notions about the advantages of the country. It's very beautiful, but it's not economically feasible for most people. And to tell people they should be doing that when they have to leave their calling and suffer severe financial um, hardship, it's, it's really very irresponsible. It's not an easy option for most people. I'd like to go uh, back to something that earlier this evening around the dinner table, uh, you, Brian, and uh, Mark brought up a very critically important point. You said you didn't doubt that if God chose to use uh, this computer problem as a means of bringing our civilization down in judgment, he could do it. But you felt that the moral dimensions are the critical issues in our civilization's failings, and that God's judgment was going to uh, be much more obvious. It wasn't going to be a computer technician's uh, problem and we would not be able to blame uh, the original technicians who started us off on the wrong foot, but we would have to face up to what we are morally before God. I think we need to go into that more. If we do believe in God's judgment, we have to believe that it is going to be in the form of a moral judgment. All his judgments have been moral ones. And uh, we've played fast and loose with things morally in one sphere after another, in economics, in uh, family life, uh, 
uh, our culture has fallen short. We have seen the breakdown of things. How just a few years ago, as I mentioned earlier this evening, Gary Hart was forced out of a mm. presidential race because of a scandal that was exposed, and yet worse scandals, one after another, have come to light concerning our president. president. And if the polls are correct, they have only increased his popularity. So there's something wrong morally with all of us. I do believe that if God is going to judge us, he's going to judge us in the moral sphere. Would you like to comment on that aspect of it for a while? I, I think well, it's very important. I, I, think it, I think it would be very unfortunate if things in general fell apart, our economy, our debt structure, which had implications in uh, from Wall Street to our politics, if things fell apart and if people had the idea that it was a technical problem caused by the short-sightedness of a few computer technicians 30 years ago, it would be very unfortunate because they would think it's not our problem, it's mm. the few people's fault, and we're the poor victims. If things fall apart, look at, look at the things that we've been warning about uh, for, for many, many years. Paper money that is based upon the confidence of the people, extreme debt structure, public and private, um, the loss of personal freedom, people of expecting this, uh, our humanistic statism, people of expecting somehow this can't go on forever. Well, it's easy to look at one scenario, okay, a computer glitch is going to cause the breakdown of civilization and all this is going to, House of Cards is going to come crashing down because we've been saying it can't last forever. Mm. If we had been around these microphones 10 years ago, our thinking probably would have been geared around thinking that the Soviet Union was yep. somehow going to be the agency whereby God judged uh, exactly. our civilization. That didn't happen. And it's really easy to say, some point we have to reckon with what is due us. And it's easy to look at the next thing that we can see on the horizon and say, this is going to be the means of God's judgment. Um, but we can scare ourselves a lot, and we can give a lot of poor advice if we, if we overreact to, mm -hmm. to everything that comes down the pike. Rush, you have one of the most comprehensive understandings of history of probably any man I've ever met in my life. And I just wanted to ask you if you could comment for a moment about maybe three historical events that were judgments of God and whether or not those judgments were in fact able to be perceived by men before. And I'm thinking of things like the fall of Rome in 476 AD, the Mongol invasion of Europe in the uh, 13th century, and maybe the Black Death, which you know wiped out as as, up, as many as uh, fifty percent of the population, those were great uh, judgments. There's no question about it. God scourged and disciplined His people. He used them, I think, to pave the way for Reformation and revival. But the, for the people who were sitting on the other side of them, could they have anticipated those things? And could they have? Uh, was there was there anything they could have done before? <clears throat> A very important question, and it would take a great deal of time and research to answer properly. Let's begin with the fall of Rome. Uh, 
the fall of Rome was predicted by the pagan Romans long before it fell. They knew that they were not the strictly moral uh, people they had once been. They saw on all sides every evidence of decline. What had happened, though, was that by that time they had eliminated all the major enemies that could threaten them. And so it was that uh, Rome fell through a variety of reasons, one of which was their belief in centralization as the key to uh, simplification, mm -hmm. whereas centralization complicated and made the imperial government all the more incompetent. They fell, of course, on the moral issue, and they were hit by that again and again. They fell because the family was destroyed. A number of reasons can be given for the fall. You see, one of the problems with detailing the reason for the fall of Rome is that it was not one single reason. Yes. Uh, when a man goes bad, he goes bad across the board. <laughs> it isn't that he has just uh, picked up one bad habit and all the rest of his life is sweetness and light. No. He's gone rotten to the core. And so it was. There were all kinds of explanations as to the fall of Rome. We do have Augustine's surviving, the city of God, and also the uh, Presbyter Salvian's account of why God had to bring judgment upon Rome. Well, the uh, Black Death came early on, although it hit much later than the Mongol invasions. Uh, the Black Death hit Byzantium very early, I think in the five or six hundreds, mm. and then uh, became quiescent and recurred much later in the Middle Ages. It was uh, an interesting thing in that some have theorized that uh, one of the reasons why, say by the 18th century, which was a particularly dirty time, I mean physically dirty, when bathing was hmm. uncommon and not popular among the uh, civilized people of Europe. I'm sorry, but we have run out of uh, time on this tape. Uh, we will continue the discussion into some very important aspects of it in tape 412.